Go ahead and get our Bibles out. You remember we are in our second uh, sermon, third sermon, excuse me, in our series, in our refresh series. Uh, these are topical sermons. Uh, so if you're going to be flipping around in your Bible, be prepared to, to do so quickly because we're not just going to be sort of hanging out in one text. This morning's sermon is on the gospel. If you're here this morning as a guest, I'd encourage you to pay very close attention to what we say. We live in an age of counterfeit gospels. Gospels that to the undiscipled and therefore undiscerning may look and feel and even seem to work like the real thing. Let's just run through a small sampling of the counterfeit gospels that you may encounter uh, as a Christian in the 21st century. You have the therapeutic gospel. Uh, maybe some of you in Decatur got the same uh, card in the mail that I got this week from a local church asking these questions. Are you tired of living your life all by yourself? Do you ever wish that you were connected to a bigger picture? Would you love a little certainty? Are you looking for some safety and comfort? Friends, this is the therapeutic gospel, which seeks not to answer the greatest question that our souls must arrive upon, the question of how can sinful man be reconciled back to a holy and righteous God? No, the therapeutic gospel says, how can we fix your damaged psyche? Jesus is the answer to that. So come in and follow Jesus. You have the activist gospel, which sees the greatest problem in the world as primarily political and justice-based. And the solution to that is various sorts of political action. Then on the other side of the aisle, you have the gun owner gospel. The, the greatest threat uh, today is those who would have us lose our weapons. And, you know, these are the NRA card-carrying, and by the way, I love guns, so <laughs> don't misread me here. These are the Christians who act like the greatest threat to the church today is a threat on Americanism. Then you have uh, the God as grandpa gospel, right? The, I'm never going to spank you. You're not going to be in trouble at my house. All I want to do is give you a bunch of good presents. Even if you do something wrong, I'm going to kind of wink at it and have you just come sit up on my lap. You have the prosperity gospel. No need to go into that. Jesus is your personal ATM. There's the moralist gospel. You know, your, your ladies, your skirts have to be this long, and, and men, you have to do this, and the only way that we can have a right relationship with God is if we do all the things that he wants us to do exactly right all the time, which is crippling. Then there's the Jesus is my homeboy gospel. You know, just kind of casual, you know? I shouldn't even say ca just cash, right? You know, say the whole word. Just whatever, man. Jesus is like, he's here if you need him. Maybe not. It's whatever. Now, the way that I introduced these counterfeit gospels, it may have been a little misleading. I may have communicated the idea that uh, counterfeit gospels are a new phenomenon, Right, that this age is uniquely out of sorts when it comes to the gospel. That I may have accidentally communicated the idea that the gospel has never been under more assault than it is today. And friends, that's just, it's simply not true. Uh, 
The gospel economy of the church has been flooded with counterfeit currency ever since the church has existed. When you read your New Testament, you can see over and over again on the pages of Scripture that the gospel is constantly under attack. As we've been learning on Wednesday nights, the Corinthian church had to deal with a resurrectionless gospel, right? The Galatians, they were having to deal with the gospel of the Judaizers. That was a works-based gospel. John seems singularly focused on fighting the false gospel of Gnosticism, which said, among other things, that Jesus was not fully man. You can move outside of the New Testament into early church history, and you see that the church is fighting false gospels left and right. Arianism, modalism, Pelagianism, a lot of isms. If you don't know what those are, they're all bad, okay? Friends, there's never been a golden age in church history. The true gospel has always been under attack by false gospels and will continue to be so until the end of the age, which is why the author of Ecclesiastes, with an abundance of wisdom, says, say not, why were the former days better than these? Now, wouldn't it be nice if our Bibles had like a divinely inspired appendix in the back that listed off every kind of false gospel, just every mutation, every derivation of the one true gospel, and then a section on how we could interact with and counteract these false gospels. That would be fantastic. Your Bible might be too big to carry, though. That's probably why God didn't do that. We don't have that. But what we do have is a very clear word from God. What we have in the pages of Scripture is a very, very, very clear articulation of the one true gospel. We have what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as long as we have that, we, don't, we shouldn't feel like we have to understand every false gospel out there. For the Christian, however, knowing the gospel is not enough. Right? I've, I've used this illustration before. In Spanish, there's two different words, of, words that mean to know. One is to have information about something. The other one is to have a personal, intimate knowledge with that same thing. Christians, particularly those in our camp, you know, we, we love our doctrine, right? We know our Bibles. We tend to confuse having a knowledge of the gospel with actually believing the gospel and obeying the gospel. But for Christians, knowing the contents of the gospel is not enough. We have to believe it. We have to live it out. We have to adorn it. But that being said, we still must believe it. According to Jesus, whether or not we believe the gospel is the most important thing in the world for us. If we believe the gospel, we will go away to righteous, eternal life in Matthew 25, 46. And those who don't believe the gospel will go away into eternal punishment. How do you know which destiny awaits you? Well, the gospel gives you the answer to that question. If you misunderstand the gospel, you will misunderstand what God says about your eternal destiny. If you rightly understand the gospel, the odds of you following him into eternity are much higher. But there's more. The gospel, friends, is not just about you, right? 
this is the most, like one of the most common illustrations that we use in this church, but we always say that your relationship with God does not exist in a vacuum-sealed tube that goes from you directly up to God in heaven. That's kind of ten, that's, can kind of be how we as individuals think about the gospel, but the gospel is also about the church. It's about the body of Christ, the family of God. And a right understanding of the gospel is just as important for the life of the church as it is for your personal Christian experience. So with that in mind, I've got two points for you this morning. Two points. Number one, the gospel for you. And number two, the gospel for the church. Let me go ahead and tell you in advance, point number one is going to be the longest. It's probably going to be three quarters of the sermon. It's going to be, have four subpoints. so I'm kind of cheating. And then point number two will be much shorter. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into point number one. Father, help me this morning in my weakness. Be my strength to communicate clearly. Lord, we know that your spirit indwells all those who belong to you, and so we pray that your spirit would quicken my words as they are received by your people here today. Amen. Point number one, the gospel for you. It has often been said, I feel like this sermon, I'm just using all my, my best illustrations, but here we go. The best, the best of the best right here, the classics. It has often been said that the gospel is like a beautiful jewel with many facets. And we could probably spend all morning sitting here together holding the jewel of the gospel up to the light and rotating it and looking at every facet of this glorious gospel. We could talk about the gospel as the coming of the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. Or we could talk about the gospel as the grand unfolding drama of the universe. We could also talk about the gospel through the lens of the Reformation, you know, the five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, all that. And all that is amazing, and we'll probably do that in the future. But in this morning's sermon, I simply want to make sure that we as a church are all on the same page about the core elements of the gospel. So we'll do that by looking at four subpoints. Super simple. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. So let's look at the first one, God. The first thing that the gospel tells us about God is that there is a God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God, but the God of the universe looks back at that fool and laughs at him and says, I am here and you know it, whether you'll admit it or not. We also see in the gospel throughout the entire revelation of God in scripture that our God is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existent in three persons, one in essence. Moreover, this triune God is the God who created all things, as Will prayed in our gospel prayer. Not only did he create everything, but he also created it all to be good. You go through Genesis 1 and you read the story of creation and God creates something, he stands back and he says, that's good. He creates something else, he stands back, he says, that's good. Over and over again, God is the most excellent artist in the universe because he created the universe. Every plant, every animal, every human being good. The gospel also tells us what God is like. In the gospel, we can most clearly perceive all of his attributes. We learn that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. 
We know that he's beautiful, patient, kind, wrathful, loving, and more. But the one attribute of God that the gospel seems to highlight over and above the rest is the attribute of God's holiness. Holiness, as we've noted before, speaks to God's nature as being separate, as being above, as being distinct. He is beyond. The attribute of God's holiness captures the excellency of all of his other attributes. It is the superlative of his being. The Puritan Thomas Watson once noted that holiness is not in itself an attribute of God. Now, he didn't say it this way. I'm about to say it this way. It's almost like God's super attribute, right? Holiness is a summary of the perfection of all of his other attributes. God is loving, wrathful, patient, just, omniscient, and so on, in a way that is completely distinct So when we say that God is pure, for example, that he's without moral blemish, we don't mean that he's pure like any other kind of purity in the world that we know of today. We mean that he's pure in a way that we can't even begin to imagine. When we say that God is loving, which by the way, some people think that maybe love is the attribute of God that is most highlighted in the gospel. Friends, it's not quite right. Because in the gospel, we learn that God's love is not like any other kind of love that the world has ever known. His love is a holy love, a distinct love, a unique love, an otherworldly love. So when we say that God is love, we mean that he is holy in his love. Same thing true is true of his sovereignty and so on and so forth. God is very concerned with communicating his holiness to us throughout the pages of Scripture. If you just look in the Old Testament alone, Over 40 times, God says, I am holy. And this holy God who has created us has called us to be holy even as he is holy. Which leads us to sub-point number two, man. Early in the pages of Genesis, we're told that God created man. uh, But we also learn there that mankind is, is unique. We're not like the rest of creation. There's something about us that sets us apart. Now that setting apart language, do you recognize that? That's the language of holiness. Our holy God of the universe created human beings to be holy and distinct in this world. And he accomplishes that. He makes us holy by creating us in his image and likeness. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, You know what it means to be created in God's image. We've talked about it a thousand times, but let's just rehearse this truth and make it 1,001. To repeat myself is no burden for me, and it's beneficial for you. When we bear the image of God, that's just another way of talking about being his representatives on the earth. We're supposed to be like little mirrors running around the earth, reflecting the glory of God back out to all of his creation. We were created to be God's vice regents, his representatives. The idea of imaging God goes something like this. God will not be known visibly to his creation on earth, but he will still be seen, so to speak, in us, in humans. When the world looks at human beings, what they see is a tiny glimpse of who 
God is and what God is like. And that is regardless of gender, age, race, education, beauty, or anything else. All of those things may vary, but the glory of God belongs to us if we are human beings as we image him on earth. If you're 85 and on a respirator, dying in a hospital, you bear the image of God. If you are a fetus in the womb, seven weeks old, you bear the image of God because you are a human being. This privilege and honor is part of our relationship with God. You see, friends, we were not just created to know stuff about God. We were created to intimately have knowledge of Him, to have a relationship with Him. And one of the main responsibilities in that relationship is to represent Him. This is called the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And it is an aspect of the gospel that often goes neglected, overlooked, underemphasized. But this doctrine is supremely important for a right understanding of the gospel, especially in our day. Because without it, without you having a comprehension of how glorious we were created to be, you will not understand how terrible sin really is. You will not understand how bad the bad news of the gospel is unless you understand what God intended for us to be. Kings and queens on the earth. You can only begin to understand how far we've fallen when you understand how, st- how tall we once stood. So, what is the bad news of the gospel? Well, it's this. Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see that glory language in there? Just like that image. You see, that image that we were supposed to be reflecting to the world as an extension of our relationship with God, it has been damaged. And damaged isn't really a strong enough word. It's been broken. It's been marred. It's been distorted by sin. The sin of our father Adam, as evidenced in children, and our personal sin. Sorry, let's do a little pause real quick. I was talking to someone the other day who is not a Christian, and I was trying to explain to them the sinfulness of human beings. And uh, I said, I was trying to explain to them, and they just couldn't get it, and I realized they didn't have kids. And so it was, uh, the conversation was off to a rough start, you know. Listen, uh, our sin makes it so that we fall far, far short of doing what we were created to do, which is to reflect God's glory. We were created to project beauty out into the universe, but our sin causes us to project nothing but the profane and grotesque. We project the ugliness of sin into the world. And if you want to know what that looks like, God tells you. He tells you in Romans chapter 3. It's a very detailed picture. Paul says this, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, if you want to know what sin has done to this world, 
All you have to do is exist. You will see and feel the effects of the fall in every second of every day. When you experience slander, greed, malice, sexual immorality, racism, sexism, debauchery, abuse, and so on. We could just run down the list. You know that sin is real and that it has led to our death. Now, let me pause and I want to be really clear about something here. Uh, This is not a problem that's out there only. It's a problem that is in you, in me. This is not an injustice that you have been merely a victim of. One of the great sins of many modern preachers who want to connect with people and get them to buy into the biblical idea of sin is they just talk about all the bad things out there in the world. Can't you see? Don't you understand? Don't you feel the effects of all of the sin in the world? And that is true, and I've just said that. But sin is in the world because it is in us. It's in you. There's a story of G.K. Chesterton, who once read an article in the local newspaper asking readers to write in and to say, to try to explain what they think is wrong with the world today. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in, and these are the words of his letter. Dear sir, I am. I think he was right. Romans chapter 3, which we just read, is clear. There is no one righteous. No, not one You can try to evaluate your own righteousness by comparing it to others, but that's not a good game to play. What about your righteousness compared to the righteousness of God and His Son, Jesus Christ? How would you fare then? Friends, you don't even have to compare yourself to God. You can't even live up to your own standards of righteousness. It's like when I tell my kids to make sure that they put their dishes away. I'm tired of putting their junk away. It's not my job to clean up. And then I get done eating and I live, leave all my dishes on the counter. I can't even live up to my own standards. If I were to put a tape recorder around your neck and just let it record your entire life for the next several years, and then one day I put you in a room and I just let, you, let it all play back, just let you see the way that you have lived your life, you would say, I have failed even my own moral litmus test. Friends, none of us are righteous. All of us are sinners before God. And now we suffer in a world that has been ravaged by our sin. And we must endure the natural and logical consequences of what happens when we live by sin, when we trade in the glory of God for our own pleasures, when we trade in the pleasures of heaven for the fleeting delights of the flesh. When we reject God's perfect law and decide that we can be the ultimate arbiters between good and evil. Now, if this is true, in light of who God is, holy, righteous, just, how do you think he should respond to our sin and rebellion, to our trespass? Should he just wink at it and let it slide? Just sweep it under the rug? I mean, that would be nice. Listen listen to how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now listen, if you just stop right there, you might be inclined to believe the God as grandpa gospel, right? Doesn't it sound like he's just going to wink, give you a lollipop and tell you everything's going to be okay? But he doesn't stop there. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Friends, that is bad news. Because we are guilty. Because of that, the gospel says that we must die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Physical death, which is really just a manifestation because our bodies are not disconnected from our souls. Physical death, a manifestation of our spiritual death, our separation from God, who is the source of our life. Death is a consequence of sin. I just want to ask you this morning, can't you feel the tremors of death in your daily existence? Even when you feel most alive, most alive, whatever it is for you that makes you feel most alive, doesn't it feel like you're not quite living? Even when you are able to experience those highs, those endorphin dumps, Isn't it astonishing how quickly that high fades? Don't you recognize the ease with which the thrill passes? Isn't there something wrong with how quickly your joy turns into sorrow? Don't you feel the presence of death in every aspect of your existence? Every relationship, every relationship. I love my wife more than everyone in this room combined. I love you, babe. Marred by sin, our relationship. Every relationship. Every labor, even the ones that you love most, carried out as if you were under a tremendous burden. Every body, our physical body, in a constant state of weakness and decay. If you're young, you probably don't really understand what I'm saying, but even you get sick. Every nation on earth corrupt in any number of different ways. Every institution, even the church, straining under the weight of sin. Every pleasure, ultimately unsatisfying. You can see death in every divorce, every assault, every lie, every embezzlement. This is what sin has done to us. This is what sin is still doing to us today. Sin has taken us captive. It has made man, woman, who we were supposed to be kings and queens on the earth, God's holy representatives. Sin has taken us and made us slaves, says Paul in Romans 6. You see now why I had to hang out on the image of God part? In Romans 5.10, we learn that sin has made us an enemy of God. And when you operate as an enemy of God in the world that God has created, the world that he governs and rules according to his righteous standard, you find that spiritual death stains every piece of the fabric of life. But the bad news gets worse. Sin has not only made us enemies of God, but it has also made us enemies of one another. 
Which is why, according to Galatians 5.20, the fruit of the flesh, what happens, our sinful flesh, when it starts bearing fruit, this is the result. Enmity. That's when we're at war with one another. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. We're at war with God. And we are at war with our fellow image bearers. Anywhere that the image of God is to be found, we are there trying to fight it tooth and nail because of our master sin. I know I'm spending a lot of time on sin, and I think it's for a good reason. We cannot understand how good the good news of the gospel is unless we understand how bad the bad news of the gospel is. And we live in a day and age where people do not understand the concept of sin. They think it's an oopsie-daisy. And so the gospel doesn't seem sweet to them. So how bad is this bad news? It's as bad as it can possibly be. We have been created to be holy, but we've chosen to be common. We've broken God's law. We have rebelled against his rule. We have rejected his love. We have despised his wisdom. And we have, at the root of it all, failed to give him glory. And because of all these things, the righteous judge of the universe stands over all of humanity and with complete authority declares us guilty. All of humanity sits under what the Bible calls the condemnation of God. You can see it in Romans 8.1 when you do a little reverse engineering. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Implicitly, therefore, you understand that for those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is nothing but condemnation. That language of condemnation, that's when the judge bangs the gavel and says you're condemned, you're guilty. You're going to suffer the righteous punishment of the law. The penalty of our guilt is death and hell. That's the gospel. Revelation 20.15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Will there be a literal lake? Probably not. Whatever's going to be there is probably going to be much, much worse than physical fire. But there's more. The bad news of the gospel has an extra sting to it, an extra bite, an extra twist of the knife. What is that sting? What is that twist? It's this. In punishing us, God is giving us that which we most desire. Have you ever wanted something so bad And then when you found out, when you got it, you found out that the thing that you wanted was, in fact, not good at all. You were were lusting for this person so much, and then you finally received some of their love and affection, and you found out it was not satisfying. And everything that you lost in order to gain that, terrible. And we could do that with any number of sins in our lives. Well, that is what happens in our punishment You see, friends, God gave us his glory. We rejected his glory. We said, we don't value your glory. We don't want to participate in your glory. We don't want to project your glory out into the universe. And God says, fine. You won't have my glory. 2 Thessalonians. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his might. Friends, this is bad, bad news. If you're old enough, do you remember how it felt when you first heard about 9-11? I remember when I was sitting in my classroom and the teacher pulled in. You remember the big TV on wheels? Pulled it in, turned it on. We saw the building smoking. I didn't really know what was happening. And then we understood when the second plane hit the second tower. What about the passing of the Obergefell decision? The end of a proper understanding of marriage in this country. Do you remember how you felt when you first heard about that? What about when that candidate that you were hoping would win lost? Or what about that candidate that you were hoping would lose actually won? Do you remember how that felt? When you heard, when you woke up the next morning to see those election results? Was it crushing? This bad news, did it take your breath away? Did it leave you with the inability to sleep at night? Did it cause you to lose your appetite? What about when you heard that the coronavirus had touched down in the United States? How did you receive that bad news? Did it scare you? What about when you lost that friend to a car accident? or your parent, your child, when you heard that they were gone. How bad was that bad news? When you found out that the cancer was back, that the test was positive, that your bank account was empty. Friends, all of this pales in comparison to the bad news of the gospel which says that if we left to ourselves, if we are left to ourselves, we are alienated from God. We are lost. We are what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, without hope in this world, facing an eternal wrath from a righteous God that we so richly deserve. This is the worst news in the world, which makes point number three all the more glorious. I can't cry yet. I'm not even preaching it. (laughs) Point number three, Christ. You know, this isn't in my notes, but even just when you hear that name, Christian, when you hear the name of your Savior, what does that do for you? Can't you just feel hope fill the room? Doesn't it bring within your heart a sense of joy that feels like it could never be crushed by all the sin in the world, by all the enemies of God, by all the tragic circumstances of this life when you hear the name of Jesus? Our only hope, our everything. You know, we, uh, we pray a prayer of confession roughly every other week in, in this church in our time together on Sunday morning. And during that time, as one body, what we're trying to do is freely confess to God, to one another and to the world, that everything that I've said in point number two is true. Right? Now, 
because we're Christians, we also have an assurance of pardon that comes after our prayer of confession, right? And if, you'll, if you pay attention, you notice I tend to use the same language. I'll, I'll confess the sin, and then I'll stop, and then I'll say, and sin does not have the last word. Grace does. And then we'll read something from the Bible that tells us about that grace that we have received in Christ. You remember earlier when I read from Romans 6.23? Very powerful. The wages of sin, not my reading the scripture, the wages of sin is death. But even in that verse, sin does not have the last word. You read that whole verse and it goes like this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You feel the weight of sin, the despair of death, the hopelessness of our state. And then there's a but. Praise God for that transition in that verse. And then comes our hope, then comes our salvation, then comes our Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead, but God has made a way for us to live again. Amen? This is good news. It's the best news. Instead of making us pay the price for our sins, Christ took the curse on himself. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He suffered the wrath of God that would have utterly destroyed us. He died the death that we could never die, that we should have died but could not have. And he absorbed the punishment that was reserved for you and for me. Why did he do it? God didn't have to come on a rescue mission for us. He didn't have to give up his son to save us. Why did he do it? Well, there's a, there are a whole bunch of reasons. Some of them more theologically intricate than others. Jonathan Edwards talks about God's desire to reverberate his glory out into the universe, and I think that's totally true. But friends, can I just be a biblicist here with you for a second? Can I just be good old simple? Let me just give you just a pat answer from the Bible that I think is probably the most in-depth answer I could give you. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Friends, God came to save us because he loved us. God loves you. I really want you to believe that this morning. This world is so devoid of love. Sin has so damaged our hearts that even in our most intimate relationships, it's hard to maintain love at a fever pitch as it should be all the time. In the life of this church, sometimes... We have to strive and fight to maintain our love for one another. Sometimes our own sin causes us to feel distant from God. We don't know if God's love is still there for us. Friends, it is. You don't ever have to question the love of God again because you can see it in the cross. How can you question his love for you when he sent his beloved son to die for you? If you're here this morning and you're thinking, Sean, I, I just don't know. God can't love me. I'm unlovable. Uh, 
I kind of want to rebuke you this morning. I want to exhort you to actually believe the gospel. The gospel that says that if you are in Christ, then you are loved by God. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You remember earlier when I talked about God's love not being the primary attribute, but God's holiness? And we said that God's love is defined by his holiness. His love is the distinct love. It's a different kind of love. You see that here in this verse. How? He loved us even when we were dead in our sins, even when we were his enemies, even when we were in our trespasses, actively rebelling against him. He loved us. That is a holy kind of love. Human beings, we only love people who love us back. At our best, by the Spirit's help, we love our enemies. But that is not our natural default setting. But in God, we see a different kind of love, a holy love. In God, loving the unlovable, saving the undeserving, dispensing mercy to those who deserve judgment, we Christians have a word for that. And that word is grace. This is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's unmerited favor towards his people. It is the promise that God holds out to all men everywhere if only they will receive it by faith. Which leads me to point number four, or sub-point number four, response. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's use our imaginations. Imagine yourself as the subject of a great king. A citizen of a glorious kingdom. But in this kingdom, you are no ordinary citizen. You are part of a faction that has raised arms against your sovereign. You're part of a coup d'etat, an attempt to overthrow the crown and seize the throne. In order to accomplish this, you've entered into fellowship with another lesser citizen of the kingdom, and you've sworn allegiance to him as the future king. What you've done is heinous in the sight of the king, and he has decreed that you, along with every other rebel in the kingdom, shall die. Now imagine that one day, as you are carrying on in your rebellion, the king sends out his son to conquer the evil prince and all of his followers. The son arrives, mission accomplished. He crushes the head of the prince. He declares victory in the name of his father, the king. Now, this king could, of course, in light of this victory, crush you at any moment that he pleases. It would not be difficult to put down this petty insurrection. But for his own wise purposes, he chooses not to. Instead, he sends out a call of clemency into the land. He does the unthinkable. He offers grace to his rebellious subjects. He publishes the news of his victory and this offer of grace at every outpost throughout the kingdom. He appoints messengers to stand at all these outposts and to stand in the roads along the way to the outposts. And these ambassadors of the king, what they do is they cry out day and night, imploring the rebels of the kingdom 
to put down their arms and to be reconciled to their merciful king. Forgiveness will be granted to anyone and everyone who lays down their arms and trusts in this word of promise from the Lord King. All you have to do to enter back into the King's good graces is confess with your mouth and really mean it when you confess it. Believe in your heart that he is indeed the true king of all. Well, friends, that is the story of the gospel. The victory has been won. Sin and death have been crushed. Satan has been bound. Grace has been extended to us in all of our sin and rebellion. And God is now calling all men everywhere to repent. This is the response that God is looking to find in us. Romans chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, by the way, that word Lord, I know we just kind of use that as a synonym for God, but if you would have been reading this in the days of the New Testament, you would have heard Lord as Caesar or King, the the great ruler of the kingdom. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Later in Romans, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you're no longer under the righteous condemnation of God. It means that you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, from the wrath to come. It means that you've been adopted into God's family out of this fallen world. It means that you've been united to Jesus forever where you will rule and reign with him. To be saved means that you will be received back into the same glory that you once so vehemently rejected. Romans 8.1, with no need for reverse engineering. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be saved means that in God's law court, you are declared not guilty and can once again have peace with your maker. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that word justified means declared innocent, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that every good thing that you can possibly imagine, every good thing that we in no way deserve, is ours in Christ Jesus if by faith we receive this good news. Friends, allow me to wrap up point number one by reading from our uh, service guide, which is here every Sunday. We have the same gospel message there every Sunday. We're not doing it special just for this sermon. Here is a really good summary of the gospel. Maybe take some time to pray through this or share it with a friend who doesn't know Jesus. The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law, rebelling against his rule, and the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake, the perfect, obedient life that God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. 
On the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in him for salvation. Do you believe this gospel? Point number two, the gospel for the church. I've found that more often than not, when you do like a gospel reminder in the church, when you kind of come back around and like, let's make sure we're all on the same page about the gospel, there's one common response uh, from most Christians, and that response is, why are we doing this? Don't we already have the gospel? Right? Like, yeah, I learned this stuff back in grade school, you know? Why are we going over our alphabet again? Well, on the one hand, that's true. Yes, that is actually what makes us a church. We are a body of believers that are covenanted together in the gospel. But, there's always a but. Merely possessing the gospel is not enough. We've already talked about that. We must believe the gospel. We must adorn the gospel with good works by living it out in every sphere of our lives that God has called us to. We also must guard the gospel. We must promote the gospel. And friends, here in the Bible Belt, this one is probably the most significant. We must not let ourselves grow cold or apathetic to the gospel. The gospel must not become rote to us. You know, it's Tuesday night, meatloaf and carrots again. Sunday morning, oh, he's up there preaching about the gospel again. If we do, if we allow ourselves to develop this mindset towards the gospel, we will find ourselves abandoning the gospel. This was the issue in Galatia. Paul says very early on in the life of the church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is upset. And you sit there and you say to me, Sean, I would never do that. We would never do that. Yeah says every church in church history that has ever abandoned the gospel, probably right before they abandoned the gospel. Like every presidential candidate who says that he's, he would never run ever, not in a million years, and then a month later announces his candidacy. I need everyone in this room to understand that the gospel is not something that we graduate from. The gospel is something that we live in perpetually. Moreover, I want us to see that everything that we do as a church should necessarily flow out of a right understanding of the gospel. Let me just run through a few examples. We're going to talk about this first one more in depth later, but like the way we evangelize, right? The gospel says that men are dead in their sins and that only God can raise them back to life. If you have a misunderstanding of the gospel, the way that you try to share the gospel with people, the way you try to lead them to Christ is going to be off in a big way. What about the kind of community that we experience? The gospel says that our God is a triune God, that he has been in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one with another since before the foundations of the world. Our understanding of the God of the gospel shapes the way we live out the gospel. Our understanding of the gospel influences the way that we utilize our budget. It influences the way that we practice church membership and church discipline. It affects the way that we do things here on a Sunday morning. 
There's a reason why all of our songs, all of our prayers, all of our preaching attempt to be rooted and grounded in the gospel. You don't think that I know that there are a whole bunch of really cool, fun, different songs that we could sing on a Sunday morning that would probably have more people in this church, but that we don't sing just because they are completely devoid of the gospel. Sometimes they're even anti-gospel. There's a reason why we don't have what is often called a seeker-sensitive church model, right? The seeker-sensitive church model assumes that people are out there seeking after God. But the gospel tells us that no one seeks after God. Psalm 14, 23, no one seeks God. Our future health as a local church depends entirely on our ability to, by God's grace, be as deeply rooted in the truths of the gospel as possible. You see this all over the New Testament. Paul is a pastor, and whenever there's a pastoral issue that arises in the church, he doesn't address it with scolding or moralism. That's not true. He does scold, okay? He does it with a gospel scolding. Paul's pastoral instinct is to constantly say, okay, here's an issue. Let me show you how we're going to fix it. Exhibit A, the gospel. Let me just give you one example. There was an issue of unity in the church at Philippi. The brothers there just couldn't see eye to eye on stuff. Sound familiar? They just couldn't be of the same mind. Paul, as a brother who loves this church dearly, this is his counsel to them. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So that's the command, right? That's what you need to do in order to fix this unity problem. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Have one mind. These are impossibly tall things for him to ask of these people. But look at how Paul buttresses this exhortation. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love that. He says, you can do it. Christ purchased for you the ability to do this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How can you think others are more important than you? How can you have unity? How can you not have selfish ambition? Paul says, look at the gospel. You see, Jesus, he's God. Yet he didn't act like God. He didn't cling to those rights. He emptied himself and he died a a slave's death, a criminal's death on the cross. Paul just points back to the gospel. He says, that's your master. Imitate him. The health of the Philippian church depends on their ability to comprehend the gospel and live in accordance with it. The health of Sixth Avenue Community Church depends on our ability to comprehend the gospel and live in full accordance with it. A right understanding of the gospel is the lifeblood of this church. So it's my prayer that, brothers and sisters, we would be committed with one heart to believing the gospel, to loving the gospel, to defending the gospel, and to adorning the gospel of our great God. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you are our victorious God. We praise you for all that you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us back to you, to reconcile us back to one another, and to set the cosmos in proper working order. We look forward to enjoying you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together.